Right, hello, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and carbon zero goals. Uh, yeah, today we're here with uh, Robbie McGrath from DRES. So, uh, and we've got Alex, Jeff's looking after the kids, Duncan couldn't make it, and Sarah is picking up her kids now, she'll be back in a minute, so she'll drop into the podcast at some point. Um, yeah, Robbie, lovely to see you again. Hi, great to be here, yeah. Long time list, our first time caller. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we uh, we know Robbie through Jeff. So Jeff has long time dealing with D-Res because through the magazine primarily. So D-Res, what was it? You produced the largest passive house development in Ireland. Yeah. So in 2007, they did, or 17, they did Silicon Park. There's 50 passive cool. houses there. So yeah, that's... Uh, quite a serious accolade and since then we've worked with you guys on some messaging projects and uh yeah we've stayed in touch because yeah. you're really interesting and we feel a lot of sympathy for your approach because uh because yeah we love generalism like mm. the the surgical application of generalism it's mad useful so um you're head of sustainability at DRES, isn't it yeah so i'm head of sustainability here since uh, august last year so just a year and I've just come back to Ireland after 13 years in Finland, so I was more on the commercial side there, but yeah, the first time in residential on this side, and, and the DRES, essentially our Durkin family business, they're 50 years in construction in Ireland, building kind of homes for from kind of social housing up to more premium end of the market, and yeah, I just found the opportunity to work with these guys really interesting and something kind of new for me uh, and they're just their vision and kind of focus on sustainability and innovation in the market was really kind of yeah sparked my interest and it has been a really interesting year that i've been with them so it's been really good well they're a really interesting company like a a long time family building firm known for quality which is a, a excellent starting point who i mean correct me if i'm wrong but the story is the brothers took over the firm from the, the father and decided they wanted to make it more their own. And so they they saw the writing on the wall in terms of sustainability and have pursued that doggedly. Hence the 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 passive house development, another yeah. innovation. Yeah, but I guess they have there are kind of still other brothers with the, the Dorkin name as well, with their businesses as well. So it's all it's kind of spread out from the, the original kind of father and his brother's company and the, the, there's kind of the Dorkin is a well name a well-known name in the Irish construction industry that's for sure and, and the quality behind all of the work that they do is kind of has stood to them through the years and I think that's something that we continue to kind of promote and it's they take a lot of pride in and it's something that's very important to us in what we do well I think it's really impressive like you're what depending on how you count it you're the mm. second or third largest uh, house builder in Ireland. Yeah, the third, the, the largest kind of private house builder in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. and you're much. doing it from a sustainability first perspective. Yeah, yeah that's the, that's the main focus on how we do it. And, and I guess it's it's a two prong thing: it's sustainability and kind of providing value for the customer. Yeah, so it's, yeah. I mean, the bit that's interesting about that is you're making it pay. Mm. Like, oh, it is viable. I proper and the space room to do the innovative stuff. Yeah, it's it's real kind of climate capitalism in a way. There's a business case for what we do. It's not just we're not just out there hugging trees. We're we're doing kind of practical sustainability and making sure 
we're not just doing things for sound bites or for LinkedIn posts. It's actually there's a, a tangible business case that also provides value for the end user and kind of gives our kind of building stock like from even from an embodied carbon or from a, a life cycle carbon point of view, we have, I guess, confidence in what we're doing, that we're doing the right thing, but we still have lots of improvement we can make, much the same as the whole of the construction industry, this huge scope to uh, improve. And and luckily now we're in a position where there's, there's many manufacturers and companies who are maybe hidden away for so many years, banging a drum about sustainable materials or sustainable ways of doing things. And now they have much more exposure, which helps them get to scale and then helps them get past a QS in the office who's just looking at the numbers on Excel. Yeah. And now we can find a business case for why we use them. So it's yeah, it's really a good time to be in this space, I think. What I find particularly interesting, so it was Jeff who told us about the uh, your accolade for the largest passive house development. Obviously, he's going to be talking about that. Yeah. Uh, no, he is a passive house zealot after all. Mm. Um but I think it's it is interesting that you take a hybrid approach to this, and I've heard that term used in scornfully and positively. Like uh, I like the agnosticism that you you apply to the work. Like you're not driven by any particular fashion or fad. You in particular, and I think this is why we we stayed in touch with you because it was just just interesting talking to you. So from. Uh, a sort of, I don't know, self-aggrandizing perspective. Like we felt a lot of sympathy because you've done you specifically have done a lot of different things like us. And you take all these different experiences and you plow them all into this broad generalist understanding of what it takes to do all sorts of different jobs in line with uh sustainable building practice. I think it'd be interesting to hear a bit about your background. I mean, are you trained in anything sustainability? I guess, yeah, as you say, I, I, I class myself as kind of a, a generalist in sustainability. And I, uh, training-wise, I'm an engineer, so I'm a mechanical engineer, but also manufacturing engineer, but then I have a degree in kind of technology management and stuff like this. So I, I was I started out in industry with in the electronics industry with Intel, and I was as a, a kind of engineer there, and there was a big focus on like environmental health and safety. So you got pulled into the environmental side of things. And, but it was, it was very much from, a, I guess, with the amount of chemicals and different things that were on site, there was a, a, a lot of systems put in place to protect the company from doing any harm environmentally and things. So there was, uh, in that way, there was a exposure to corporate, it wasn't called sustainability at that time, because this was back in Jesus, <laughs> 2000, I suppose, from my age. But um, yeah, it was from that then I kind of went into the pharmaceutical industry and then into medical devices and I was doing things like in companies making disease diagnostic kits for HIV in Africa and stuff, much like these COVID tests we have now, a drop of blood and then you, you have kind of uh, tells you if you've HIV or not. So it's from all of those type of things, there was a different, more engineering approach to sustainability. And I guess it comes back to uh, a thing in, I think it was the first day in second year in university, and one of the lecturers said, "Right, you've done a year in engineering. Tell me what an engineer is for. Like, what? What's your purpose?" And everyone was coming up with ideas. Oh, yeah, we're here to design better machines, or we're doing uh, process improvement. And about twenty minutes of people coming up with ideas, and then he just said simply, 
your job is to save money. That's it. Save money. <laughs> he said, you have to do things to save money. And it kind of still resonates through kind of sustainability point of view, because when I'm talking to people, and I'll get on to the other things I was doing in a minute, but it's I the things that I'm suggesting from the sustainable point of view is business case for they generally will save you money in the long run or upfront. So it's still the same kind of idea from an engineering point of view that we're, we're looking at how we can do more with less or kind of less in, less out. We're looking at reducing waste or the same thing from the manufacturing side of things. And I, I, I look at kind of the construction industry uh, as just a big machine that we need to kind of uh, rationalize how we design and taking out kind of excess over-specking of things. And I know this is something that Jeff is really interested in with how he looks at this as well. But it's, uh, I guess, my role in DRES is to, yeah, get all their sustainability ducks in a row from an ESG point of view, from reporting, but it's also from the innovation and kind of development point of view that we can look at ways of not following business as usual from the status quo. It's, it's challenging the norms. It's looking at how we make a simple thing as a house, building houses for thousands of years, but it's it's what can we do to get the best house for people in the right price point that they can afford it and have the kind of sustainable chops in it that we can, we can stand over and go, yeah, this is a, in 30 years time, this is still going to be an energy efficient home. It's still going to be low carbon. It kind of has insulated people from the energy crisis. It's helping the national grid by generating their own electricity or this type of thing. So it's, I guess it all, all essentially comes back to the idea of saving money or saving carbon and trying to make sure that both of those things are the same way. Yeah. yeah. The same direction. Well, I like that as a, a way of approaching the subject. Cause like some of the things you've described in the past, like your, your use of, or the, the way you're trying to include things like photovoltaics and energy efficiency in properties it's all about saving money for the consumer but long after you you're involved in the project you're thinking far ahead and you're acknowledging the implicit cost of carbon as it becomes more explicit yeah and i guess that's that's one of the issues that we have as a house builder because there's a there's a very clear delineation of where we have input in the actual property so we build a house somebody buys it we go great good luck we're not there anymore so once the development is finished we go on to the next one um we our name is still on the development so we want to make sure that like th- there is obviously an aftercare period and stuff but we want to have we want to ensure that the people in the houses have the best house they can possibly have and that there's no issues because we've designed it well we have done all our due diligence on the system we use the the kind of um uh we can the calculations we've done on energy generation and we're looking at giving people a 55% saving on their kind of energy use in a home. And especially at this time, it's a really important thing, but also not just to have that on our, our gold level houses, it's on our first time buyer houses. So it's kind of, yeah, it sounds very arsy, but the kind of democratizing sustainability. So everyone is on the same kind of playing field. So it's it's that type of idea. One thing I'm, I'm curious about is that you don't really have to do all of this, do you? So because again, in this sort of this today's world, you know, it's a bit obviously it's a bit disappointing. But a lot of house builders they just do what they can get away with, and it doesn't have to be bad bad quality. I don't mean it from that perspective. I just mean that they can just follow the rules and get something out there that's for them 
very, very cost effective, it's time tested, etc. Whereas you're going from a perspective of actually trying out new things, which I think is really interesting as well. So why why is it such a an obvious business case for DRES to be doing all of this? I guess there's a, there's a certain level of kind of bravery and following your conviction in a way, because our CEO has been very forthright and basically said, like after the Silicon Park with the passive houses, that we don't use fossil fuel heating in the houses. So we use heat pumps. We use mechanical heat recovery ventilation, which is, again, an extra cost. But it's now, it, it, it's been accepted that this is in the, this is the base build of the house. So it's a kind of a non-negotiable. It's, this is a quality that we want to go to. And we need to find, like, if the prices does go up, we have to find a different way of doing it or different uh, suppliers. But it has such an impact on the houses and it aligns us with the, the climate change targets for the, for the, for from an Irish government point of view that we're increasing the level of kind of electric heat demand in the, in the country, which obviously that that's, has a knock-on effect with the actual supply, but that's that's something that needs to be sorted out not by us. But then the heat pumps, they have a target of 600,000 heat pumps in by 2030. Uh, and there is obviously a risk factor inherently in that as well, because you guys in the UK have a 600,000 heat pumps a year target. So then that has, can we actually source heat pumps in a couple of years' time? So it's yeah. we're looking at alternative options there as well. But it's, I guess, yeah, there's a, it's a business decision that's been made. And I guess it's, almost, yeah, as I say, a kind of non-negotiable. So it's doing the right things for the right reasons. And then it just be, goes into the, 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 the standard house. And that's everything else is you can play around with to try and do horse trading to find the best value you can in, in, in the materials you use outside that. And, and that's where the, the kind of investigation of the whole, uh, the whole building uh, such there's no, nothing fixed apart from those kind of very, I guess, very technical and comfort based things. I, I think they're kind of very important but, uh, and the lack of fossil fuels is also a key one. So, yeah. When we were working on that project, we were very taken with the the reference to biophilic design. But biophilic not just being about lovely woody natural textures and colours, but actually creating space for the the wildlife to exist in the environs of the the developments, mm. like you know, creating pathways for ponds to become inhabited, like accounting for the fact that uh, creating the space for wildlife to migrate to the site not just uh, live there. How does that fit in with making it all pay? Like, yeah, I guess some of them are intangibles that it's hard to put a price on. But I guess our creative design director has been very focused on place making and ensuring that we're not just making building, like uh, housing estates. Yeah. We're building communities. So then it's like, she got very, very interested in biophilic design and brought into how we looked at the actual house so yeah we are building timber frame houses but the exposed natural elements in the house are maybe not maximized but we looked at kind of window size and uh, and ceiling heights and things like that to allow more daylight into the space but also to give a connection to the the nature outside because all of the the development is yeah it's going to have the largest kind of park in Wicklow it's like a 14 acre acre park going in but it's there's no house that's less than five minutes walk from a green space and it's having functional green space as well not just 
a grass field. So it's a diverse um, kind of ecosystem as such with the, the idea that we're understanding what the ecological value of the site was before. So it was essentially a, a field growing kind of crops, pretty much monoculture. And then we want to increase the ecological value even after we put in roads, even after we put in houses and to have interconnected kind of varied um, ecosystems where we have ponds and kind of wildflower meadows and uh, uh, the ability for amphibians to hide and get to kind of water sources and things like that. So it's, uh, and even how we've brought paths through the spaces uh, and things like that, there's been a lot of thought gone into it and a lot of it happened before my time as well. So this is not something that's just happened from me coming on board, but it's something that's it, just the idea of creating a community is a, a core part of how we build as well. So that because the Durkin name is going to be with that kind of development going forward, that we have yeah, a community there that will enjoy and have pride in the where they are. So I suppose that's not about saving money. Uh, no. Like your lecturer suggested, but you are building value. Like yeah, long-term I guess value, like brand value. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's that finding the well, maybe not cost, but yeah, like you say, the value in what we do. It's uh it's long term thinking mm. and not too long term either. I think I think also, I mean, uh, from what you're saying there as well, there seems to be potential for the things that you do now are going to be a sort of your from our language, uh, your prototypes as well. You know, there's still there are places where you're innovating, you're looking at new ways of doing things. So sometimes I suppose you're also taking a risk of not being sure exactly what the impact will be. You know, they're the fundamentals that you know that will work, that will make sure the homes are super comfortable, efficient, everything like that. But then you're introducing new concepts and new ideas around. So presumably, do you actually sort of look back on these things and and see what you can learn from them and incorporate them into your next projects? Or does that does that work like that? Or Yes, yeah, so I guess this is one project we have ongoing at the moment, and it's, it's it's looking at kind of assessments of the developments we have, so we can see. So we do uh, essentially when we pick a site, we're looking at what's the potential price that somebody in the area could pay for a house, and yeah, we look at that from that point of view. But then uh, we've been looking back at some of the developments we've finished, and in the last couple of years, and seeing that uh, there was a small town nearby, and there's been a certain level of regeneration of that small town because there's an extra 400 people living there. And now there's coffee shops popping up. There's different kind of different businesses or co-working spaces popping up and things like that. And it's the project we have at the moment is to try and evaluate that kind of change and see what value we added after and then be able to monitor and have kind of surveys with the people who moved in and what did we do right, what did we do wrong and being able to kind of transfer that across the um, different developments. There's also uh, another angle in it as well that helps in, in, in GRASP certification as well if we have this. So that's something that opened up a, a, an actual business reason for doing it. So we have, we'll then get double value from it, from a understanding and also from a, a kind of ESG reporting point of view. So um, for, for those who may not be aware of it, do, do you want to just explain what GRASP is? Yeah, we can indeed. It's, it's, of course, one of these wonderful acronyms that's out in the, in the market. No. <laughs> it's the Global Real Estate, yeah, Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. So it's uh, basically this environmental social governance toolkit to enable businesses in the real estate market to be able to essentially get all their ducks in a row from a 
a reporting point of view to, uh, and also from a governance and policy point of view to, to see what this is best practice. This is where we're at. Like you, you do every year you add new things and it gives you kind of a roadmap for kind of getting to business excellence in a way from a sustainability point of view without forcing you to do certain things that could be potentially read as kind of greenwashy because you're just doing something to tick a box. And we're, we're adding the things that add value to our business. So things like sustainable procurement policies and then working with our stakeholders and our kind of um, supply chain, basically, to go out and say, this is our ESG requirements. Can you kind of support this? And in many cases, like our subcontractors are maybe quite small. So we asked them, have you got an environmental management system? They go, no. And then we say, right, we'll help you, give you the outline of what that should be. And we can kind of, like I working on sorting out workshops with all of our suppliers and things to go explain to them, this is the level you need to be at to work with DRES. Now, we're not going to cut you off straight away, but we will help you get to that level. And then it's even things like having EPDs for materials or uh, even down to their own internal governance and around equality and uh, inclusion and, and then things like that. So it's it's a knock-on effect in the market, which helps raise all the ships in a way. And, and there's no there's no downside for the small supplier or small subby because then they can just turn around and have a better chance to get another business with other people as well because they have an ESG or sustainable foothold in, in what they do as well. So the grasp it's also helps from an investor point of view because they look at this kind of aggregated data and they can benchmark, say, DRES against the residential developer in Germany or France or Finland. And, and that's kind of our peer group and stuff. So we've we just got our results last week and we kind of doubled our score, but first year you do you don't have to release your scores as it was but at least we're, we're moving in the right direction to be we want to be the best in kind of europe in, in in the next year and obviously that's from a esg reporting point of view but we also want to raise how we are as a business and kind of use that to drive us forward oh man you're making a Proper positive case for ESG. I'm always very, like having worked in financial services, like ESG, it can be very greenwashy. It's easy yeah. to say the right things. Well, especially like, if a company like BP can have a uh, well, star rating or whatever, then that's, that's the kind of greenwash that drives me crazy. Yeah. I, I can't deal with that. So this is why we're trying to approach it as not just a tick box exercise. It's actually improving the business. It's, we're using it as a toolkit. It's not a certification. Yeah. It's, these are steps that somebody's made from assessing the whole market. And yeah, if you do the X, Y, and Z, then you'll have a better business. And but, that's where we're going. Yeah. And these sorts of systems or certifications uh, systems, like uh, B Corp, like they often favor, or no, not often, they absolutely 100% favor the larger entities mm -hmm. who've got the money to be able to throw at it. But it's really interesting with the GRESP stuff that you are obliged to bring on your contractors they get not brought into line but they like by token of your efforts you're improving the standards throughout the industry in a bit of a more meaningful way i'm not yeah, trying to blow smoke up here no no but it's we want to be leaders and if you're going to be a leader you have to lead in a way so it's you have to bring these people on a journey with you or else you're just going to be on your own shouting into the wind going, we're going to save the world. Just type of thing and nobody's listening. So it's, 
it, it is like at the end of the day as well, like sustainability is it's there's so much, so many options and so many uh ways it's described and things like that that it just becomes overwhelming for people. So I've I've always tried to just simplify it into the important things at that time for the people I'm talking to uh, as a consultant for years. That's what I had to do. Like, but it's um it's the steps we can take and go on the journey and then we get much further together. And then it's I guess we're getting to the stage where the kind of David Brailsford incremental gains and stuff aren't enough anymore, even though you can add them all together. We still need to have a step change in what we do. And that's why we're kind of uh, always interrogating what we do and how we do it and trying to find kind of new ways of doing stuff. Uh, I guess that's keeps it kind of interesting in a way. So do you reckon you're in a better position, like your independent status, that you've not got shareholders to worry about? It's an it's an independent business, like yep. you said. Mm. So you you've got the the latitude to do what you like. I mean, not you specifically. I mean, uh, like the the business doesn't have to. It's not trying to appease shareholders. I don't know if you saw the news about what's happening in the UK in the week, but throughout the building industry, lots of developments. The foundation. <laughs> how to phrase this best? There's loads of developers throughout the UK. Seeing the, the the new Partel regulations coming down the line, they've got uh, a leeway to not have to adhere to this this sort of carbon reduction if they get the foundations put in before, I think, June next year. And so loads of developments, all they're doing is foundations. Okay. Get them in so we don't have to worry about it. And usually that's not driven by willfully like the the people who want to build the homes wanting to build the worst quality home it's because shareholders are demanding shareholder value mm. like if you can save money you've got to you know there is a a legal obligation that is the mandate but you guys you can do what you like like i'm curious about how you define s- sustainability at dres because like you alluded to or said explicitly before it's a proper slippery term mm. yeah i guess even like over the years uh, as a consultant, I stopped using the word sustainability <laughs> in a way when I was talking to clients yeah. because it just kind of distracted the conversation away. And it was just kind of doing the right things for the right reasons in a way uh, and finding a business case for those things. Uh, and I guess that's uh, from a, a company point of view, we still have to find value and we have to do like, uh, they're definitely not just throwing money at, it's a sustainability idea. Let's do it. It has to be uh, a kind of very much business-based decision to do it. So, and the onus is on me and the, the kind of rest of the kind of team to find the value in it. And in some cases, that means we need to actually reassess how we cost projects. So, say for example, uh, plasterers will maybe give you the price of a room. They won't price per square meter, they won't price man hours. And then if we have find a product that saves us time, saves us kind of uh, dry, uh, lower levels of plastering and things like that, that we've saved money in, in these two areas, then if we're not actually costing that into our original baseline costs, then we can't see that value, if that makes sense. So we have to look at the, the certain parts of the, the building in different ways and also push contractors to actually price it in different ways so we can 
we can uh, see that. So I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that sort of feeds into what we were talking about. Hi, Sarah. So Sarah's just rejoined us having uh, <laughs> it's from cancelled after school uh, clubs. Well, the, the travails and labours of being a parent, eh? Fun times. Yeah. So you two haven't met, have you? No. No, no we haven't. Cool. So, uh, yeah, Sarah, Robbie, Robbie, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, we haven't oh. met, but of course we have people in common because mm. we're living up to the, the I don't know, the, the typical, oh, you all know each other, you're all Irish. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we were just saying before. There are those, yeah, our CEO and yeah. director, his brother. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, for full disclosure, it turns out Sarah went to primary school with the owners, the Durkin brothers of, of D-Res fame. That's uh, right, that's right. My mum taught them. <laughs> what a small world, eh? Yeah. yeah. We were just talking about what it what sustainability even means. Oh, it's just so funny because when I was looking at researching T-Res, I was like, um, first question's got to be standards. <laughs> first question's got to be, oh, you're building sustainable houses, are you? Right, brilliant. What standards? Well, uh, that's interesting because... Uh, I was just about to ask. So, in terms of thinking about sustainability, that you're always challenging it, you just mentioned before we started recording that you're going through a process of reevaluating the whole product, like the DRES product, the homes from the ground up. So, I think that'd be an interesting thing to talk about. But as Sarah astutely guided us, well, you've got to know what you're benchmarking against. Mm-hmm. So, what yeah, what are the standards or guiding principles for what you do? What is it that you're trying to push now? I guess the the passive development that the guys did back in, in 2017, that's definitely influenced how they look at home design. So it's very much a fabric first approach. It's air tightness. It's like a target of below kind of one air change per hour and things like this. But using a term that I know Jeff will, cringe now and say the kind of passive principles idea but it, it, it's <laughs> yeah that, that yeah. old fig leaf I, know, but it's, yeah. I, I guess it helped break a lot of barriers in them having a good understanding of what a passive house is from having built them to then seeing what's been and, and i guess passive is still on the table each time we could have started new development so it's still there and it, it, it's from as i say from the the, the, the fabric in and then the technical equipment as well having the heat pumps and the mechanical heat recovery ventilation and then it's a minimum of kind of a2 bare rating but we're, we're looking at the moment how we can get a standard kind of an a1 house so it's and even going further than that and then looking for net zero carbon and net zero energy homes and things like that that's that's what we're working towards at the moment and, and having kind of pilots on that but it's i guess yeah that's the they're the kind of main drivers but from since when I came on board in the last kind of 12 months, then it's been a big focus on kind of embodied carbon because that's a drum I've been beat for a long time and was kind of doing LCA in kind of Finland for years and kind of lecturing and stuff in university on that. So it's a passion of mine that, as well, being able to expose the kind of easy wins that we have in how we design houses and getting away from the business as usual or we always always use that insulation so let's keep using it or yeah like it's pushing our like supply chain and our partners in the timber frame industry to help us kind of look at 
different things. The overspecking is one that we're kind of really focusing on at the moment. And it's, yeah, that that's somewhere where we're trying to find different ways of adding value and reducing the materials in the house. So it's even looking at different foundation types. And do we need to have a concrete slab? Should we have a, a kind of just a raised timber floor cassette or this type of thing? How can we make that work? And kind of um, the things that happen in kind of uh, like the last budget with the 10% levy on, on kind of poured concrete and, and things like that, that will only come in next September now, but it's still something that helps helps me when I'm trying to push these things with our kind of commercial team and our design team to say, well, can we actually design concrete out? Can we get rid of this? Or can we look at kind of minimizing that? And it's, we're looking at different kind of uh, concrete mixes. It's, yeah, I, I guess we've gone through a process this year from our what, what started out as a, a value engineering team, which I, I didn't like the name of, so I, I rebranded it as kind of innovation. And because uh, I, I Yeah, value that. engineering is worse uh, yeah. than passive <laughs> principles. Exactly. So like we're, we're going to... But we have a really strong team who are looking at everything is on the table. We're going through the whole kind of house from the ground up and seeing where we can where we can keep the good things in the house and kind of rationalize the other things that are maybe costing us more money in how we build a wall, say, or how we what, what we do with the roofs or, or this type of thing that we can enable us to keep all of the great things that we've added to houses over the last few years around kind of heat pumps and heat recovery and and different kind of things that provide better well-being in the space. And I guess we're trying to do it from a, a data point of view as well. So we're doing, I think the shock me when I came back was that the residential market, the architects just do 2D drawings, 2D CAD. I was like, not 3D, we don't use Revit. So now we've gone out and got Revit models for some of our houses and we've then gone from that to go almost to a BIM level so we can see where things are in the um, spaces or even for how we lay out piping and uh, cable. But like, I think what's interesting about what you're kind of alluding to, I guess, is that you're taking a systems approach, right? So you're looking at the house as a system, hmm. a system of all the different elements, and then sort of analysing each of those in turn, depending on what the external pressures might be. So if it's budget and if it's levies or if it's things that are coming in, then taking a systems approach is really important. And also you talking about well-being is also a really crucial part of it as well. Like mm. what they actually like to live in, you know, how are you going to get that buy-in to what it is that you're selling? And I think just coming back to the passive house principles bit, I understand why it makes people like nervous to talk about passive house principles because then it makes it sort of sound like a list of things that you can just say, we're going to pick this one and we're going to pick that one. But again, it's supposed to be a systems approach. And that's, I suppose, what makes some people feel nervous about the passive house principles approach. But I think actually digging into that a little bit more, often when people talk about passive house principles, the bit that they're leaving out isn't all of the systems bits. It's maybe just the last bit of maybe certification yeah. or maybe it's some parts whereas they've done everything they've done their tightness they've done the thermal bridging they've done the fabric they've done all those things but there's just some bits that are not possible to achieve for whatever reasons and whether that's to do with employers requirements not quite matching up to what the design spec of particular products might be there's those issues but we 
with, uh, I work with Best Built Environment Smart Tran- Smarter Transformation a couple of days a week. And we went to um, Shetland recently on a bit of a um, relationship building and fact finding um, mission just to get to know everybody uh, who's working there. And there is very little that you can teach somebody who's living in an extreme climate about uh, air tightness or the need for a decent fabric approach. And so they probably are building a lot that to passive house principles because they've already got to deal with things that we're all experiencing now, such as material cost uplifts and all of those additional things like a lack of skills because they are, you know, separate from the, the mainland. So everything immediately gets more expensive and less readily available. So there's this, there is something in the pacifist principles approach, dare I say it, to the, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of people now who'll be raging listening to me say that, but there's something in it if we're trying to get everybody to do as much as they can within their ability rather than like it's only this one you can only do this that's maybe not going to be as helpful to the transition as trying to get as many people engaged with the first principles of it so making sure it's best practice you know the fundamentals are understood and they're trying to be rolled out I suppose yeah and I guess that's that's the thing the only thing that we're missing essentially in having the houses as passive certified is the windows so we have if we went triple glaze, we would get it. We would get the, that's pretty much it. And that was just essentially, a, it's, it's a budgetary thing pretty much, but all the other parts of it have been included in how we do things. And even, even now, like we've done like the thermal bridging kind of analysis, but I, I've taken that step further with kind of energy modeling and thermal comfort uh, modeling as well to find kind of overheating and looking at even G values of windows so we can see even with the orientation of a building where a bedroom might be 7% of the year over 25 degrees. And if we turn it east facing from south facing, then it becomes 12% of the year. And we're looking at things in that way. And even from a a kind of structural, uh, I guess, a thermal mass point of view, there's another reason we're looking at kind of walls and and, and kind of the floor slab and stuff, because we've modeled as well how much kind of heat we're absorbing during the day where that goes at night and then what our baseline is at the start of the day so it's if we reduce the slab can we reduce that kind of baseline in the summer so we have a lower starting point so we don't need to have well obviously we don't have any cooling in the house but we don't need to have as much kind of uh, air flows in the house to try and bring that temperature down to that 25 degrees so it's it's a systems approach and also I'm trying to have it as a data driven approach as well that we're not just making the decision based on cost but we're making the decision on cost and kind of sustainability carbon and the actual data that we have from uh, doing a step further than most other people in the in the industry are doing so take it's commonplace in commercial buildings which is where I was for the last kind of 13 years and it's just bringing that across to kind of residential because like even from the well-being as you say being so important like I was a first well accredited professional in, in, in kind of Finland back in 2018 and doing that from a, a commercial point of view but seeing I would give presentations to asset managers saying oh you should do well when you're building or renovating or doing this building and it was the case that you're saying yeah you're making the office and we have really good air quality we're monitoring co2 or monitoring vocs and uh particulate matter but then people go home and the air in their house is four times worse than it is in the office and <laughs> so, 
that's that's the thing. Like, and we're, yeah, yeah. It's like, why are we not focusing on this? Is the place where we bring up our children, where we our castle as such. So we're looking at how we can have the best in our environment, even to the level where we're, we're looking to we're putting together a catalog for our handovers to homeowners that it's essentially a red list of do's and don'ts. So we've made, uh, we've given a low VOC kitchen. We haven't put in, like we've looked at the pinks and sealants that we've used to have low VOCs. But then if you go down to a cheap furniture shop and buy a crap sofa, you're going to destroy all that by all the off-gassing that comes from that. So it's given them kind of guidelines for how they can select those things in future, carpets or curtains or this type of thing, just things to look out. And obviously that certification is quite, is not very prevalent in the EU as, as much as it is kind of America, but all the green seal type things and stuff. But it's something that at least some awareness that people understand that, yeah, you can have a big impact on the indoor environment just by by making bad purchasing decisions. Yeah. Bobby, you've kind of just slipped that into the conversation. Like, yeah, we kind of do this list and the occupant engagement and like surely both Alex and Dan are going, hey, he's just he's just talked about occupant engagement. Nobody ever talks about occupant engagement. What? Well, I was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was about to ask like, what data are you drawing from? Because it sounds like you've got loads and postdoc data, folk don't tend to collect. So you, you're describing a process whereby you're modeling stuff and it sounds like you do testing against it. But the bit I'm really interested in is exactly what Sarah was alluding to is like, do you talk to people as well? Like once they're, they're fully embedded in the home to find out what it's like to live in a D-res home? Um, I think luckily our aftercare kind of connections to the people who buy the homes are very good. And people, I guess, have access to whatsapp <laughs> and they're very vocal <laughs> on that so we will find out very quickly if there's a problem but it's uh i think we try to give as much upfront information as we can to make sure that they're uh understanding a big part of it as well as in these energy efficient homes with mechanical ventilation and kind of heat pumps and stuff that people don't know how they work and they go in and they're just messing around buttons and, and they, they're trying their best but then it's kind of um something that we need to educate them up front behavioral change and stuff like that but it's um i guess as i alluded to earlier that we're looking at more of our an impact assessment and monitoring after the event when we sell the house we're not just walking away after aftercare so it's it's something where we will be having a lot more kind of surveys and stuff with people about things like this so it's 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 i think is one thing I wanted to to ask as well is because you mentioned about your your research into maybe removing um, concrete foundations and moving to sort of cassette types or beams. Is there any cultural impact or any cultural pushback on that? Because I know that from where I come from in the south of France, it's changed now, but there was a long time, long standing desire to have concrete houses and so like so, so talking to builders or to homeowners living in a wooden house seemed a bit sort of a weird thing and i know it's different obviously um up here but is there anything that you've seen when you're starting to talk about these new innovations where people are going well no i like my i don't know my airing cupboard so i love my older boiler system that was going to be heating up all my clothes or or things mm. like that Are any culture aspects that you found have been interesting yeah so i guess we still provide a hot press in the house, but we don't have a boiler. It's in the utility room, the coming from the heat pump, where the, the water 
tank is. But now, instead of a, like the hot press now has the option of a seven and a half kilowatt battery. So we have located that there. So people have the idea of, oh, this thing is going to heat my tails. Which For anybody not. who's not Irish listening, by the way, a hot press, <laughs> hot press, a hot press yeah, is an airing cupboard because we don't call cupboards cupboards in Ireland. We call them presses, which presses. also freaks out a lot of English people. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess the, the, the hot press was also the, the location for the water tank and the immersion. And gear. the immersion switch. The immersion. I'm so help yep. you, God, if you if ever you leave left it on. that on. <laughs> and I guess that's another part of the the kind of sustainable journey that we're on as well, where the best sustainability kind of people in Ireland were the 1980s dad going, turn off that light, close that door, you're letting the heat out. Shut that Get door. Get off the phone. Yeah, did you leave the immersion on? This thing. So it's that type of approach that we need to maybe get back to. I think people are this winter going to be very conscious of leaving lights on or, or things like that. So it's. But this is interesting that you bring that up, Alex. The cultural like implications of of that, and it's a it's a it's a gap, isn't it? It's a gap in um what Robbie was alluding to with the like occupant engagement and sharing some knowledge and information and just like making sure people understand like why these things are and how they benefit you and like. It seems like quite an obvious thing, but so often that it's just like left out, just left out entirely. Um, and I'm sorry if you've already covered this, but can you tell us a little bit about who your market is and who your competitors are? Because, you know, I know, I think we can all talk about the fact that there's a significant quantity of Irish housing stock that's pretty poor in terms of thermal performance, in terms of being damp and cold and just like, you know, we've got we've got a great lot of it over here in England as well. But like, and in terms of the your competitors, the other people who are building houses right now, like, are you in the minority? Is is what you're offering like an elite product, or is it like out there with the other houses that are on the market? Well, I guess the, the majority of the houses we build are for first time buyers, and it's a thing where we try not to differentiate between a first time buyer home and. Uh, a gold level home, which is maybe three times the price that we have as well. Those ones. So it's a thing where the same systems go in, the same detail and design. It might be just a slightly different spec on the kitchen or things like that, but it's the quality level is still going to follow through in all of the homes. And I guess the market in a way, so as I said earlier, we made the decision a few years ago to eliminate fossil fuel heating in the homes. So that's just a, a base decision that we don't do that anymore. And some of our competitors still have highly efficient gas boilers and stuff like that, but we aren't going there. Uh, and it's something that we've, we've actually recently got into trouble with uh, some some locals who saw a planning permission change in one of our developments. Um, it, they, the house had been, we bought the site with planning and we changed it slightly to our own model and we took out the gas boiler and they had put to get the part L requirements they put solar panels on the roofs and we removed the solar panels because we didn't need them anymore to get part L and because we have a different kind of business model where we provide an upgrade for people so we give you an A2 house and then we have an upgrade to get you to A1 with solar panels battery and where we have a with our kind of energy partner Pinergy we've developed this system which has energy monitoring I had to then explain to one of these kind of uh, local, I guess, chat groups and some bloggers because they were 
quantifying us as the kind of big bad developer who goes in, takes out solar panels, surely we should be doing this. So I had to explain, no, we've gone, we've removed fossil fuels, we are still going to put solar panels on, but we, because of the, the product that we're selling is a first-time buyer home, we don't want to put the added price of renewable energy on there. We want to have as an option for people, and they it's been pre-wired for like EV chargers and things like that. So everything's ready to go. But when the people are ready, because they have a, a decision to make, do I spend this much money on solar and a battery or do I buy a sofa? That's the kind of level of decision-making they're at. So we have the option that six months down the line, maybe you're in a better place. And we've we've worked with AIB to have that as a, uh, they value that uh-huh. in, in the mortgage so they can get a better rate and things like that. But it's, it's a different isn't way of that an at interesting, it. Isn't that a really interesting thing? You just found the seed in my mind about this. Like, it's like essentially the homes we build perform through their fabric, through the like core basic, God, can I say this? The basic building blocks, the basic materials of a house, right? You've got like this, this quality bit around how it performs, this envelope, how it performs. And then the kind of gold star tick bits after that are like, oh, you can like upgrade your kitchen. You can upgrade your like the finish layer, essentially, which is like the thing that we're most focused on in this, I suppose, in like house building. If you look at all of the like TV programs on a home, it's all about like, oh, this this, this funky bathroom and kitchen and whatnot, not actually about like what are your walls made of, how well do they perform, how are your windows, what's the air movement like, all those things. And if you're saying that actually we just choose to build houses that are of a of a quality, that's your shell. And then after that you can do what you like. If you've got more money, you can spend it on the things that really don't necessarily influence how well it performs, which talks about back to what Alex was saying about cultures and value again, kind of talks about the fact that you're saying well, homes need to be built like this. These are the basic things that everybody should have access to. And then after that, if you've got more money, you can spend it on whatever you want. But you've looked after the bottom line and the bottom line is actually the quality of the building. Am I interpreting that right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but it's also kind of trying to look at it from a holistic point of view as well, that we are the house and the quality of that is the key thing that we make. And then it's we're also looking at the bigger picture of yeah, the energy crisis and uh, how we can support people and also reduce their energy consumption over the life cycle of the house and things like that. So it's, yeah, I guess trying to have as much joined up thinking and not just making decisions in isolation. It's what are the, 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 the like, sure, we could put on four solar panels on the house and get A1, but then we're not giving them a battery. And the, the, the beauty of the battery is that they can, with, the kind of battery and solar system we've developed with energy, we can save 55% of energy in the year. So they're spending 700 euro on electricity and heating rather than 2,000 euro or two and a half thousand the way they keep going up. So we just looked at it as there'll be a motivator for people from external market forces to stick the solar and battery on themselves because they'll see the benefit of their, it's costing 35 euro extra on their mortgage, but they're saving 100 euro a month. Then they'll work that out. We'll try and educate them as much as possible. We even have a, a kind of uh, an open night for customers who've moved in and ones that are coming in the next few months. And we're trying not to have it as a big hard sell here by the solar. It's we also have our interior designer will be in one show house. We have our landscape architect be in the other one. And it's like we can help you like add the finishing touches to your home. Have you thought about this? 
or have you thought about this for your garden? And then it's, oh, have you thought about the solar on your roof that will reduce your energy costs? And, and leaving that as an open door that they could come back in three years' time and do it. It doesn't have to be now. But it's something that I think we've got some really good feedback from the people who were the kind of early adopters and getting texts from customers saying, oh, the best part of my day is sitting there watching my battery charge because they're working from home. <laughs> yeah, should probably be working people, but yeah, it's uh, kind of that type of thing is it's kind of good. But that kind of feedback helps us. And we may change that model in future. Maybe we do put the solar on and we just give the battery as an option, but it's something that that's that's the way we are at the moment. But it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's, again, comes back to trying to find doing kind of practical sustainability. So we're doing things from a business case point of view and cost and then having the quality and having optional upgrades to, to kind of make the houses as optimised as possible. Could I ask you more about, you mentioned you're, you're working on microgrids as well, so you've, hmm. you've clearly thought about a much more than a, a holistic approach to energy uh, yeah. sharing and saving, et cetera. I mean, what, what else are you doing in that stage? I mean, we've, we've spoken about uh, the, the guys in Finland, uh, Polar Night Energy, who use sand as a heat storage for excess uh, energy coming out of so, well, solar and wind, et cetera. Um, and I mean, are you explore, actively exploring those new innovations and to put them into your into your projects or what are you doing on that side? Yeah, so luckily I have in my role the scope to go off and kind of look at all these type of harebrained schemes, I suppose, but <laughs> it's uh, and try and find a, a feasibility for them. I, I work with the Polar Night guys in Finland with some commercial kind of developments. And even there, there was, and I guess I'm coming at it from a, yeah, the commercial real estate side, but it's also from a, uh, a point of view where I have clients who were willing to think about the, wild and wacky things and go oh that might cost us four million but fair enough we'll, we'll give it a go and like using like the, the one project we looked at with those guys it was putting solar on a, a car park roof for an office and then using that solar to heat the sand in and the good thing about that system as well is you don't necessarily have to dig a hole in the ground so yeah. we were actually looking at it from the point of view we had storage space in the basement of the building and you could just Insulate that, put in your kind of uh, heat elements and then your heat exchanger pipes and stuff and then take off that heat during the winter. But there was also added to that, we went a bit further, it was like the building was beside the sea. So it was putting in a, a kilometre kind of sea loop for water kind of heating or with a absorption chiller and things like that to get the heat out of that in the winter. Uh, even though in Finland it's minus 20 for two or three months in the winter and the sea freezes, but we could still get kind of 12 degrees out of that uh, at the bottom. And then it was even tapping in, there was a metro nearby. So can we get heat recovery from the metro, from the air in the tunnels and things like that? So right. it was... Somebody at, needs to tap into the Victoria line. Honest to God, it's a good... Yeah, it's roasting. I don't know why people are doing that in the tube. The tube is so hot. Yeah. But I guess it's been open to all these different ideas. So with the... The polar dot idea, I'd love to put a, in everyone's back garden uh, a 10 by 10 pit. And we just use the solar, not for using any kind of electricity in the house during the summer, but just all that does is heat up the sand. And then in the winter, you just pull off the heat because it gets up to 700 degrees during with, from the solar. Uh, and that type of use would be far more beneficial to people than, oh, I was watching TV or I put on the washing machine or this type of thing. And the, I guess the, the microgrid 
concept is the way I explain it to customers as well. It, it's from a peer-to-peer point of view, it's like 20 years ago when you knock into your neighbor and get a cup of sugar. Now you're asking for a kilowatt of energy from them. And it, it, it's a way that we can, I guess it's looking at finding value from sustainability in the long term. There's so many potential options there. And to do it at scale, I think is the only way we'll have impact. So it's all well and good. The government said we want 1,500 kind of community kind of microgrids by 2030. But if they're 15 houses or 12 houses or things like that, then it's not really going to have the impact on reducing peak demand on the grid. And it's that type of demand response that we can look at. It's about all of that um, trying to get it into common parlance, though, as well, isn't it? Just like making it make make it on the citizen level where people can engage with it. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying is the way that you explain it to customers. Um, and that's really helpful. I don't think there's not as there's not quite enough of that. How do you explain it to people um, out there? There's a lot of amazing knowledge about um you know, low energy buildings and there's lots of amazing knowledge out there about all of this stuff. But, but what is lacking quite a lot is the and how do you explain it to um people so that you can understand it and engage with it and just jump on board because actually one any of this once people understand it, they're like, oh yeah, I get it. That that makes sense. So that's a really important bit of it. And I know this is like, you know, you're correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all you're all it's all new build. So you don't have your toe in anything retrofit? Nope, no, luckily. (laughs) (laughs) Is that like a no, 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 enough headaches in my life? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Ireland is a great example of the fact that, though, you you know, there is big strides being made in the domestic retrofit space and in really trying to roll out a multi-annual funded national retrofitting scheme that does need, you know, time to build. But like, I think we, we had Eamon Ryan on and we talked about, that scheme and we often look to Ireland and other schemes like that where they're trying to roll out the one-stop shop approach that builds mm-hmm. in risk management that builds in you know all of those things that otherwise have failed elsewhere here for example with the Green Homes Grant and the Green Deal just failing um, because of that short-termism and not this long-term like system approach but no that's all right I won't ask you to give your opinion on the retrofit side of things as well because I'm sure that will take us off somewhere for yeah yeah I had, I'd worked with a lot of retrofit or on the commercial side like in Finland so working with kind of more office-based stuff and, and kind of shopping centers so I've seen how how it can be done in a good way, and like the, the companies I worked with there were kind of like the biggest M&E kind of contractor in kind of Finland and, and the Nordics, and then the largest kind of portfolio management company uh, or property management company in the Nordics as well. So the, I've had a lot of exposure to kind of retrofit and energy management and kind of things like that. So it's something I am aware of, but from a housing point of view, and especially the housing stock in Ireland, is it? There's a lot of headaches there in how we will get uh, finding the right mix, I suppose, with what's the most cost-effective way to like support kind of houses from the 1940s to get them up to B1 or above or whatever. Yeah. It's really it's not a one-size-fits-all, even though it's a one-stop shop, but it's kind of yeah. You're quite right. It isn't yeah. a one-size-fits-all, and I think that's partly why it's taken everybody quite so long to really get to. Um, grips that because it is just this big elephant in the room 
I think everybody knows it's not a one size fits all. Everybody knows it's going to be difficult. And so it needs that like mindset shift around. Uh, this is actually quite different. Um, and it, it needs a whole series of other things in place. And it's not something like, it's not a turnkey thing necessarily, not unless you've got a load of money. So thinking about it. So I'm thinking about this from uh, the perspective you just mentioned that this has to be done at scale. So it can't just be D-Res doing it. It has to be other people, other builders in similar positions. I think you're uniquely positioned to sort of address this question in that like where do other where might other builders start at this? Like if they're trying to address sustainability in their own building design, product design, experience design, because it's it's a daunting task. We're all very scathing and scornful of people who don't do it right. So it must be quite uh I was going to say, it must be a daunting prospect getting into this industry. Yeah, but I think this, the market has changed so much in Ireland in the last kind of maybe five to ten years that the, the the bigger companies they're all doing really good things. So it's in many cases it's that the baseline has raised so much that we're kind of competing to to keep our edge on on the kind of innovation and the way we're doing things, but. I think the quality level of houses here has gone up so much from Celtic Tiger days and things like that. That's, yeah. And it was one of my fears when I, I came back uh, and to work for a developer in Ireland because there was such bad connotations back in 25, 26, or 2005, 2006 and things like that. But it has kind of, those fears have been allayed by what I've seen from us and from several of the other companies that I, I've talked to. We We interact with them also in, Green building council and stuff like that. So we, and I think we take an approach as well that we're not, we're, we're quite open source of what we do because essentially, from my point of view, it's it's not we're not doing anything. There's no rocket science in what we're doing. The, yeah. the secret sauce is doing it. Like all the technologies out there, all the, the the stuff has been there for years, and it's the materials, the products, understanding LCA and stuff like that. That's that's all been there, and and I guess that's the. The difference is that we, yeah, we're walking the walk and, and not, I guess we're not even really talking enough about it out, outside because we're not blowing around trumpet or we're not doing this type of thing. We're just getting on with it and, and doing these type of things. So it's. I think that's really interesting to hear as well, like that approach, because I think anybody who does move forward into this, um, yeah, more sustainability led space or just addressing the fact that there's sort of an awareness that you're like, there, what's the alternative because actually we have to be going here so we're just going and we're doing that and actually if you want to learn from us like our door is open so on you come because I think there's a recognition once you get into this that there really is only this way to go with it so you might as well open the door because you know everybody's going to have to be doing this eventually and there is enough work there for everybody like it's not like oh no only we can do this because there's only that need for like this small number of, of houses or there's only this need for these services or all of the things we talked about in all of these um, schemes, like the microgrids and everything else like that, there's quite a lot still to be developed. It's still very novel at this stage. So, But I'm yeah. most curious about the small builders because Ireland still has a lot of mm-hmm. small builders by comparison to a lot of other places. And the big builders, in terms of finance, I mean, Jeff saying, uh, he, Jeff told us when he was on the way to the ACB's conference, mm. he was walking along with uh, a guy from a, a big electronics manufacturer who he'd met at the airport. 
and they passed a housing developer, like a C-suite fella, who bawled across the airport at the electronics manufacturer, where's my EPDs? Because he needed them for mm. his ESG uh, reporting in order to secure his finance for his project. So you got fucking top brass asking for this sort of stuff. Like it's being driven by the finance. Mm. But often it's the smaller players in the market that find it the hardest to skill up, which is why I was so impressed with the impact that the Gresp work has for the smaller contractors. But I'm thinking for the, the, the smaller builders, like how do they get a foothold in this? Because if you're raising the standards, like there's the potential for them to be priced out of the market in terms of quality, never mind cost. Yeah, but we've seen even we've gone like through investigation of different technologies and stuff. We've we visited some kind of small developments, like there was one in kind of uh, Westmead in, in kind of the middle of Ireland, and it was um it's just one man builder. He was building 25 houses, maybe 10 of them are uh, bungalows, and, and then the rest were kind of two-story. And he, he was building every one of them was A1. And they had solar thermal on the roof, solar panels. They had, uh, like, it slashed, he slashed, I think he had electric heating, like uh, electric kind of space heating and things like that. Yeah. But he was looking at different kind of options. And it wasn't, like, this was a really rural town. And, and the, one, the one thing he had to go back on was the fact that he had to put in a gas boiler. Or was it an oil base? A kerosene boiler he put in. And it wasn't really doing anything. It was just backing up the solar term. And yeah. he had to put it in because the people in the area were so used to burning peat or uh, having coal fire or wood fire and things like that, that they wouldn't actually buy a house without some type of alternative backup. So he had to kind of go back on his design to actually put in an older technology to just placate the, the market as such. So there was an educational part on that, but he was only like, I don't want to say small time, but like he was not a very well, big smaller builder. scale. Smaller scale, yeah. yeah. But he was very progressive and oh, could man. see just from talking to the right people and getting out there and seeing he was able to make all these houses they won and it wasn't impacting his marriage he could still kind of do things so i think there's a lot of very uh, good about the hope there that everyone can get on this uh, and that there won't be the case that these guys are left behind and even from talking to investors they're they're looking at ways that they can like support these small and medium-sized guys to actually raise their level of awareness with sustainability and kind of good build like new construction practice and stuff and things. Like that. And that's really positive to hear as well, that they are not just re requiring change, but they're actually providing a, an avenue for people to upscale and be kind of improve their businesses. So, yeah, uh, it ties in with the whole kind of push. We're looking at different modular and uh, the amount, and this ties in as much of my kind of manufacturing engineering background. I like the idea of doing things in factories, I can control the waste, I can control the quality and stuff like that. But <laughs> it's uh, the whole industry is looking at this and they're setting up new kind of groups that everything is on the table. There's none of this kind of golem holding on to their precious little kind of uh, their, 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 their little new idea <laughs> that they have and they go off and just look at that. But it's anything that comes out of these groups is for everyone. And it's not kind of, uh, I think that's the only way we can move forward and make strides in 
improving the housing stock is to be open to this because there's enough room in the market for everyone. So just do it. Yeah. That's it. Pretty much simple. Simple. So, all right. So we better, uh, I think we've got to wrap up now because you've got to go and pick up the kids. And yeah. we've been, I think we're, we're running to something like time. So for folk who need to just get out and do it, I suppose you go to folk like the ACB, join the ACB, obviously, or uh, the IGBC, if you're around, the Irish Green Building Council. Pat there, he's a busy boy, isn't he? He's doing he is. He's doing great stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, check them out. Like they're really easy to find. Um, read you, Jeff's magazine, read Pacifies Plus, and then you'll like see all these projects that are being yeah. showcased. Yeah, <laughs> oh, go real. back a few, go back a few issues, and you can see our one from. AC. Okay, you yeah, yeah, we've dropped. Hey, tell stuff. us which one it is, Robbie. We'll drop it in the show notes. Oh, Make yeah. sure people can see that work. Yeah. Kitty Park. Oh, yeah. So yeah, we'll yeah. have that feature in the 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 notes. Uh, any anywhere else you reckon you you could send people if they want to look for themselves or if they want to pass on something to a I, I presume we're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. Uh, so if they need to to pitch it at someone who might need to know where to start, somebody they encounter. Yeah, well, I guess I guess the Green Building Council is a great they have a great resource on their website as well with different links. I think so maybe that's the so further signs I think that yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, great. a good job of that. All right. Yeah. Um, anything you want to plug as well? Is there anything? No. No, he's too busy getting. He's too busy now. just getting on with it. He hasn't got time yeah. for. Alright, big up. Yeah. In that case, we'll wrap up. Yeah, that was really heartening. I really enjoyed listening to that. I I hope our, I'm sure our listeners will as well because frankly, it felt quite optimistic in a time where other things are not very optimistic. Oh, it is. That, 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 like, that's, that's good. There's, there's lots of good things. We're not all doom and gloom. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I thanks. think we'll have you back. Maybe soon uh, to talk about your time in Finland. Oh yeah, yeah. I think yeah. there's there's some tales to be told there that we we began to touch on. Yeah, sorry, I skipped over some of that. Yeah. Um. All right. <laughs> so, uh, like, subscribe, please review. Apparently, writing a review. I heard someone say this on another podcast. Writing a review, a couple of lines, as well as just doing the five stars, is really helpful for the algorithm because. Yeah. I mean, this only gets in front of people who actively seek it or have it put mm. in front of them. And it's even if they just write, what's a hot press? They can yes. that. <laughs> that Okay, everybody, ask your questions now. What is a hot press? Hot and we'll press. put a glossary of Irish terms at the yeah. bottom of the show. Um, but yeah, share it. If you like it, chances are someone in your peer group may well be interested in at least one of the episodes. Jesus. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, join the ACB, join ACAN. Subscribe Passive Ass Plus. Advertise with them if you uh, have a business. Uh, I know that's not your purview, Robbie, and I think you're probably already involved. Passive yeah, we are. We're at, we, we are advertising. But yeah, yeah, but I also find lots of really good kind of manufacturers and products there. And it opens doors for me all the time. It helps me from just constantly Googling or annoying Jeff. So it's good to <laughs> no, no, yeah. keep annoying Jeff. That's all right. He really likes being annoyed. He does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, he loves being annoyed for money more. Mm. Um, so yeah. Um, all right. Dead on. Well, thanks Bye. very much. All right. Great. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Robbie. Thanks, guys. All right. Big up. Cheers. Cheers.